Hello everyone and welcome to the very 78th episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom which is coming to you on the 2nd of March 2023. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we have some letters of comment. We do. We have a letter of comment from Ange who says that they got a bit far behind on episodes of Octothorpe and then they just started listening from a recent one instead of trying to listen to the backlog. Hello, welcome back. Hi Ange. Hi Ange. Hello Ange. We also got a letter of comment from Dave Coxon who talked about our picks for um, dramatic presentation short form, said that he's late to the party on The Boys and he's just about to finish season two, but he's loving it for all the reasons I talk about and more. And then he also says he's about to sign up to Apple TV Plus again, primarily to watch Severance because of our summary and recommendation. I hope you enjoy Severance, Dave. It is pretty great. Come for Severance, stick around for Ted Lasso season three. Yes. Unless you hate Ted Lasso, because you're wrong head. Yes. And we also heard from Christopher J. Garcia. He refuses to read the show notes, <laughs> to which I say, boo. <laughs> They're all beautiful bullet points, Chris. Read the show notes. Read them. Read them now. Read them. And then he also says he bounced off Severance, but that's likely because he was watching it on his phone. And I'm like, yeah, maybe, maybe. I do think Severance is a show that creates an atmosphere. And I do wonder whether if you're watching it on your phone with two kids running around also listening to the wrestling, that atmosphere is harder to create. But that might just be me. He does also give us some recommendations uh, for short films, bouncing off our discussion of the best dramatic presentation short form. Um, unfortunately, I haven't seen any of them. I'll track down and see if they're on YouTube or anywhere that you can see and put them in the show notes. Because I think these are all short films rather than episodes of TV. And that's somewhere where I'm very under, under-researched. Yes. Well, Chris, so we have, Chris is very good at short films. But also, uh, Chris doesn't read the show notes. So, uh, Chris, we put all those recommendations in the show notes. <laughs> so, what I love about Chris's lock is that there are two sentences which we're going to need clarification on. The first sentence is, or the first, sorry, the first paragraph is, the 80s were the proper time for RPG systems. I've only once run. That was the end of the paragraph. Uh, there was no full stop. Chris, what have you only once run? And then... That big spreadsheet has been incredibly useful, largely because I forget the months from January through to about October. I will say that the single best thing I watched last year was... And then that, that's the end of that paragraph. So, Chris, write in and tell us what you ran and what the single best thing you watched last year was. Because I think you might have been more distracted than usual on this lock. <laughs> I am wondering if Chris might dictate his letters of comment to us. And the reason I'm wondering this is that I got back from the... from. A birthday party, very late last night, very drunk. I'd had a fantastic tube journey home and I thought, I must write this down. My tube journey was amazing. It was everything that is great about the London Underground and I have to write it down. And I realised I was incapable of writing, so I have dictated it. So I have like 3,000 words of late night dictated text that I have to go back to and see if it makes any sense at all. I'm, I'm not sure, strictly speaking, the problem here was that you dictated it. <laughs> yeah a, 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 what's the phrase a poor workman blames their tools um, we also heard from raj 
who said that they're glad the Clark Awards exists, but they tend not to use it as a recommendation engine as it tends to skew more literary than they tend to enjoy. And they would definitely have nominated Time and Again, which is the Ms. Marvel time travel episode uh, for BDPSF. I might still, like, I'm I'm dithering. I'm dithering, Raj. And then he's definitely with me on Spock Amok. Uh, he loved Strange New Worlds. And that episode was just brilliant, which, yes, good. I'm glad you think so, Raj. Raj also messaged me personally on Mastodon to express um, delight that I had not seen Ghosts and um, tell me I should watch it more. So many, many people on Anonymous Claire um, stopped re- stopped listening to the podcast in astonishment at the point where they discovered that John hadn't watched Ghosts and said, John, you're one of the lucky 10,000. Um, so yeah, today's lucky 10,000. So have you watched any of it yet? Nope. There you go. Well, we were watching... Um... We're watching other things. Yeah, that's fine. But you can save it up for some time when you want a fairly, you know, a lightweight treat. It's not, it's not gonna, it's not gonna change your life. It's just gonna make you laugh. I hope you'll watch it now. Going, oh, this is the most unfunny thing ever. What were these people talking about? Chengdu. Our regular te- Chengdu segment. So Chengdu sent some emails to members. Sent several emails to members, um, some of them BCC'd only to me, some of them uh, just sent to me and about 15 other random people, some of them which are in my inbox, some of them in my spam folder. I'm not going to blame them too hard. That is, yeah, that I don't think you can blame them for. And to be fair, the second email did not end up in my spam filter and I'm using Google Mail, so they probably worked out how to keep it out of the Google ones. Um, I do think it was a bit naughty just sticking email addresses in the two line because I now have 15 random people's email addresses uh, who are presumably members of Chengdu. I feel like Worldcon should be a bit better than this, but then, I don't know, if I was trying to use WeChat mail or something, I'd probably make similar errors. It was CC'd only to 10 people rather than to like the entire Worldcon membership because that would have been quite funny. And then, and then when people started messaging back on Reply All saying, please take me off this list. Yeah, that is true. They didn't send it to 7,000 7, people or whatever. They did just send it, obviously doing it in batches. And I mean, I hope no one was doing it by hand, but I wonder if that's what they were doing. And that's why. Oh, they were 100%. They were 100% doing it by hand, Liz. You, you know it to be true. <laughs> Um, what the email actually said was that the 2023 Hugo Awards nomination page is in final testing and expected open by the end of the month. And then they will email us all and there will be a paper ballot as well. Uh, nominations will run until the end of April 2023. Voting begins in May 2023 and will last till August 2023. So it's it's a you know perfectly straightforward email. It's got all the timings in you might want. Gives you the website. It is in two languages. It's pretty good. Yes. That does mean, listeners, that as you're listening to this, the end of the month has come and gone. We are recording before the end of the month, but you're listening to it after. Is it time travel? Maybe. But this might mean it's open now. It also might mean it isn't, which is technically always true, but is more likely to be notable this time. By the way, you've got two months to do the nominating, so you're probably all right. Exactly. No, this is very good. And they also released PR1. And successfully sent me an email about PR1, which was not CC to any of the people. So I think they've, you know, got the hang of that now. Yes. It's very exciting. Who read PR1? Very briefly. I read PR1. I did not. So what of you can talk about it? <laughs> it's it's a very nice PR1. 
it's got all the stuff you would expect in PL1 in that it's got, you know, some quite vague stuff about like generally getting to Chengdu, what hotels they've got, some bits about the, you know, tourism activities you can do there, some bits about the food, about what will be going on. It is a perfectly fine PL1. It's just that normally PL1 would have been out like about 10 minutes after you won the vote. <laughs> no, actually, that's not true. PL0 comes out then. But I mean, we've just got PL1 for Glasgow. So you can see they're basically running about a year behind. And I think the level of detail is about what I would want, you know, a year and a half before the convention. Hmm. Okay, that's fair. It is very beautiful. And I think given how difficult travel arrangements are going to be for anyone outside China, I feel like I would like them to start easing into how are you going to get there where are you going to stay what are the practicalities like though I mean obviously we're grown up so we can work it out for ourselves but I, w- I felt a lot of that was missing I also noticed the um, recommitment to um, their guests of honour so this is the official point every Octothorpe that we talk about Chengdu where I say Sergei Likunenko still a badden confirmed rotter absolutely I f- flirted very briefly with the idea of going to China on the way back from um um australia but it's clearly insane and impossible i'm not going to be doing that when you when yeah when you said very briefly you mean we had an extensive discussion about it on the podcast that john then had to trim out i think but that was a very brief flirt (laughs) i've had much longer flirts than that there are a few things in here which are interesting firstly i had not realized so in my tiny little head when someone's a co-chair it means that there are two of them and that is not the case there are three co-chairs there is he, Xi, there is Chen Shi, and there is Ben Yellow. So I had not realised there were two Chinese co-chairs, which maybe everyone else knew, but I did not. And then they also have the division list, which is really interesting. So they have, you know, some divisions. It's interesting because what we would usually call the Wusfus division is actually like three separate divisions, which is kind of weird. Don't understand why they've done it that way. It might be that in practice they haven't. That's just the way they're reporting it. But... It's also interesting that the site selection division is being run by the same person as the program division, I guess because program is famously not a big job, so you can just do another job as well. Uh, I find that a bit odd, because I'd kind of find it reasonable if it was a business meeting that was being done by the program division person, because I can kind of see how you need to do scheduling. But site selection is like, there's not a lot in common with program, is there? It's mostly, it seems like maybe even exhibits would have been made. Anyway, don't understand that. Very strange. And a lot of these don't have um, American co-heads, which um, I think we noted before, but it's interesting to see. And then finally, uh, this just made me chuckle. Uh, There is a page on page 35. There is China Visa Application Service, which gives links for all of the places you can go to get your Chinese visa to visit China. And they have got links for the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Netherlands, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea, Singapore and Malaysia. And they are all the same link. And it's just, it just made me giggle. I was just like, this is a very good page. I like this page very much. It makes no sense to me at all. But in general, these are nitpicks. It's a very nicely put together document in general. Other than being a little bit late, uh, it is quite nice. And good art and like lovely pictures and just, yeah. Mm-hmm. It is it is very pretty. I mean, I can kind of see why they've done that. I suspect the visa page is because some places, you know, for some place, if you're applying for a visa, they outsource it and they outsource it to kind of different companies, depending on what country you're in. Mm. Yep, yep, yep. So a lot of the time you don't apply directly for a visa from the government. You apply to a particular company. 
But yeah, in this case, they could have said you can apply for a visa, like all these countries can apply for a visa at this place. Um, and if you're not there, we'll probably figure out where your other one is. Except you can't actually apply for a visa right now, can you? So I can understand why they're a bit sketchy on this, because I think you can't actually apply for a tourist visa yet. But they probably need to have something in about like, okay, this is how it used to work in terms of like what documentation you're going to need and what letters you need, what bits of paperwork, so you can start putting it together. And I mean, I like, the pictures are lovely, especially all the ones of pandas and tasty food, but maybe a bit more of that. In terms of divisions, it's interesting because I wonder how much of their internal organisation is being done in English and how much is being done in Chinese. So I wonder if they have kind of heads of divisions who are also partly able to be like the public facing ones. And then internally, maybe they've delegated an awful lot to um, internal volunteers who are not necessarily doing everything in English. Because I, I just don't know how they're doing it. I'm really interested. Um, if anyone worked on the Japanese Worldcon, actually, I would be interested to know how that went in terms of like, what was your internal like working language? Did you do it by division? Did you do it by area? You know, what did you do? Because I'm pretty sure when I worked on the Helsinki Worldcon, they just kind of defaulted to English for everything. And that worked fine because everyone was bilingual. But I don't know if that is the case for... Chengdu. So it'd be kind of interesting to know how that's going. And in some ways, it's nice to have like, I do like the idea of having like an art design division, which is kind of responsible for making sure that, you know, all the divisions have access to all the kind of design elements they need to have a nice uniform look and styling to everything. I kind of like that idea of having like this, putting it at the high level so that everyone can say, okay, well, we need branding for our program pages or our souvenir book or whatever. And they can really be thinking about that in a joined up way. This is one of the reasons why I think I've been advocating for publications and publicity to merge and become communications for a while, because that should be under the purview of one of those divisions, probably under publications, because they'll be writing the style guide, but it's not entirely clear which one should have uh, that under their bailwick, which is why um, merging them, and because it should clearly be one of them. Uh, but I agree, I think, and basically, if you read the thing, I think it's quite clear that sponsorship and branding... Oh, no, because publicity, they also have publicity. I don't understand. But yes, I think you're entirely right. <clears throat> and that ties into things we've been saying. The other thing I noticed about this is that there is a there are 255 rooms on site and then all of the other hotels are a little way away. And I know nothing about public transport in Chengdu, but that would, might have been a thing that when they were telling us about the hotels, they might also have told us about. Well... And but you've got to bear in mind that you know whenever British fandom has done a split site convention, it's worked flawlessly, and there have been no teething issues. So I'm sure this will be fine. Yeah, and what we mean by split site for Easter cons, for example, is often across a road, and people still have trouble with it. Let's talk about COVID. Oh, we had a few months off, and now we're back on it again conversation which is the eastercon that i am doing communications for has released its covid policy and um and a day later we kind of tightened it up a bit or we clarified what we meant by a couple of things because people said surely you don't mean this and we had a little conflict and we went no we don't mean this we mean that so it's there you can read it we'll put a link to the show notes i'm sure john and liz don't have anything to say about it so we can move straight on then <laughs> So I, I think it is worth saying that this is obviously an area where, you know, Alison is working on the convention and and is part of the communications for the convention. And so 
you may know it's in this segment that me and John talk more and maybe Alison talks a bit less than usual, just because this is one of the first times I think it's come up that we're having a discussion on the podcast where, you know, one person is involved in the convention we're discussing, which doesn't hasn't happened that often, but it's probably likely to happen more often as we work on more conventions. And certainly there's bits of discussion about maybe ShyCon where I had a small role where I would sort of sit on my hands and, and not say things. So if you're wondering why Alison is a little bit quieter than usual and me and John are a bit noisier than usual, then that is why. Do you, do you want to go first, John? Or shall I go first? What do you think, John? Or do you want me to start? Yeah, you start. You're better at starting than me. Um, I think on this one, I'm. I think on this one, I'm more in the middle ground than John. I don't think it's a very good policy, basically. So it's quite a long COVID policy. Um, when you compare it to things like maybe Boscon's COVID policy, which is much shorter and more straightforward, it is quite long. And I think that's also, you know. It's always harder to get people to read and follow and understand the long set of rules. But I just think it kind of undercuts itself quite a lot. So I'll say at the start, it says it has been possible for thousands to assemble at conventions like Dragon Meat Games Expo and FancyCon without finding themselves at undue risk. But it doesn't actually go on to tell me anything about why they think those conventions in particular were good at not putting people at undue risk from COVID. Because I have no idea who at Dragon Meat or FancyCon got covid and i don't know if anyone was tracking that or if anyone really knows so i think without a bit more detail on why they think it is possible for people to assemble in specialist conference facilities it doesn't really reassure me very much and then i would also say it kind of undercuts itself a bit which by saying things like conversation 2023 recommends that you follow national guidelines in respect to vaccination fine but then says we will not ask about vaccination status so vaccination is important but we won't ask you to tell us your vaccination status or prove it it says please take a lateral flow test before leaving home. But then just says we will not ask you to show us your test results. So it's important to test, but we won't ever check you did it because we don't care about them. It just sort of, it's a bit overly complicated. And I just think you could do a much kind of simpler and more straightforward one that might be easier to enforce. And there's a few other ones basically saying, we, you know, we encourage members to mask, but then saying we won't enforce it anywhere and you have to respect everyone's choices on it. Fine. It just sort of like goes back and forth a bit. I think they have clarified the one about prog. The program one originally said, I think, that uh, panellists wouldn't be allowed to wear masks. It just now says they're encouraged not to wear masks. But then it says you're encouraged to wear a mask while attending program items, but some items are explicitly tagged as masked optional and you will not be asked to wear a mask. So the other ones are implicitly masks required, except they're also masks optional. And then it says that moderators may ask audiences to space themselves and wear masks if rooms are crowded and if I was a moderator I would really hate being put in the position where I was having to enforce a COVID policy especially one that is kind of as back and forth as this one so I think even without discussion of like where this sits on my personal spectrum of feeling safe about COVID and attending conventions in a time of COVID I just feel it gives quite a lot of mixed messages and I'm not really clear of whether the convention is really yes we should wear masks but you know, please respect there are a few people who can't wear masks and don't question them about it. Or whether they're like, we should wear masks, but actually it's okay if you don't wear masks. But sometimes we'll ask you to wear masks, but there are masks optional program items. It just doesn't feel like a very satisfactory COVID policy to me. That was my monologue. I don't think there's much to add to what you said, actually, Liz. Uh, this might end up being a very short segment. <laughs> yeah, that basically neatly encapsulates everything I think. I think, so one of the things I said when the policy came out in discussions on anonymous claire uh if you're not anonymous claire let us know and we'll invite you to that discord was that i found it odd that if i was a panelist on panels that wanted to mask 
the original COVID policy very much made me feel like the convention didn't want me to do that. And I think that has since been clarified, which is good. And there were there were good at the um, at the previous EasterCon. You had to mask if you were an attendee, unless you had a medical reason not to. But panelists were asked not to mask, and I was happy with that because it felt like a good mixture between accessibility and risk. But at this convention, the masking on the part of the participants seems like it will it will probably be less good just because of the difference in the policies. And so I I think if I am going to be on panels, I will probably want to mask uh, for that reason. So I was happy that it was clarified that that was something I could do. I do think in general, I sort of wish that all of the things about whether or not these things would be enforced just hadn't been said out loud. Because I think a policy where it's like we expect you to mask and then the internal policy is but we're not going to actually like enforce it very well is probably better than saying out loud you're not going to enforce it very well because it makes it feel much more optional than maybe the convention committee would like it to be. I think there are a couple of bits where I understand why it ended up that way but it doesn't, I feel like it will result in less masking and less testing and less people who are vaccinated, which obviously, uh, as as long-time listeners to the podcast will know, makes me a little bit uncomfortable. So the other thing I would say is, aside from my kind of disagreements with how the policy is worded, is it's, it is a bit weaker than we've seen at previous Easter cons. Well, I guess reclamation is the only one we've fully had in the COVID, one, uh, COVID era, but it's it's weaker than other conventions. And what I would say is it's weaker and I'm not really sure why, because I think, you know, last year it was you must show proof of vaccination or proof that you're exempt from vaccination. And as far as I can tell, and I wasn't on the convention committee, so there may have been things I missed, that didn't seem to be a massive barrier. So unless there were lots of people who we are excluding because they couldn't get vaccinated and couldn't show proof of not being able to get vaccinated, I'm not really sure why we just didn't keep that. And for example, I think you could have a very simple policy, which was... You must be masked uh, when you are watching program items in program rooms unless you are either on a mask optional item or you have arranged a special lanyard to show that you don't have to mask, which I know a few people had at the previous EasterCon, but not so many that it made me feel like there was a massive unmasked segment of the audience. And then if you've got that in place, then I feel a lot happier about saying, well, maybe we can have the five participants sitting quite far away who don't have to wear masks. And if the expectation is that you're wearing them in certain areas, e.g. the programme room and, you know, there's a masked only social lounge, which conversation have said they'll have, then that just seems a lot easier for like expectations. You can expect that if you go in a programme room, people will be masked. You can expect if you go in the bar, people will not be masked. And it also just seems like that would be more straightforward and a lot easier to enforce. And then moderators can just say, they can just remind people that the policy is that in programme you should be masked without it being them having to make the choice to tell people they have to mask, maybe without the convention, feeling like the convention is backing them up on that. And I also think you could then write the, <laughs> the policy in half the space and you've, you've more chance of people reading it. So it feels a bit to me like this is a policy that is trying to cover all its all its bases. And I do accept that, you know, com- science fiction conventions by requiring masking at all are now falling quite far on the end of the spectrum of COVID prevention and COVID precautions. And and I can see that, you know, we're at the point where there's no realistic time in sight when we can drop these precautions. You know, essentially what we're putting in place now might be what we have to keep in place for conventions for at least the next few years. But I think this one is falling a bit too far on the side of giving people lots of options and the result will probably be most people are not masked and then that that might mean that there are people who don't attend because they don't feel they will be able to sit in program or they don't feel that they'll be able to you know walk around convention spaces and decide not to attend 
I know that Conversation said there will be a hybrid convention, but I don't actually know what their hybrid revision is going to be. There is a bit in the most recent newsletter saying, you know, they're going to they're going to stream things, but we don't have a huge amount of kind of concrete information on that. And I feel if they were telling me more to get me excited about the virtual aspects, then that might go alongside, you know, if there are a few people who say, well, I can't attend unless the whole convention is massed, which we know is impractical because there will be people not from the convention in the hotel and the hotel staff. And so we know, you know, we are never going to be able to have a space where every single person is masked. And if that is a barrier to people, then give them something to be excited about on the virtual side. And at the moment, conversation is not giving me enough concrete stuff about the virtual side to make me feel excited about it. Yeah, do you think in hindsight, having the COVID policy go live at the same time as a lot of news about the hybrid elements of the convention would have probably been a good idea? Well, firstly, if everyone's discussing the hybrid convention, fewer people will be annoyed about the COVID policy. So just from a convention self-serving perspective, I think that would have been good. But I think also what you said, Liz, I am annoyed by how, like philosophically, in the UK, like I catch the metro and there are people like sneezing and coughing and wiping their noses and they're not masked. And it's like, I feel like we had a real chance to adopt a culture where you cared about not getting other people sick and i feel like that ship has sailed and i'm very distressed that the wider british public have not decided to move in that direction it's just really annoying when you see someone who's clearly ill on metro and they're not masking and it's like well i don't want your cold like sod off and one of the things i like about science fiction fandom philosophically is that historically it's always felt like a space to me where we are one of the first groups to adopt changes that make things better for those who are less enfranchised like science fiction conventions were among the first events to adopt code of conduct policies science fiction conventions brought in stuff like panel parity whereas like academic conferences still really haven't done that and like it does annoy me because although i don't necessarily expect better from the general public i think i did expect better from science fiction fandom and that makes me a bit sad which is a very philosophical point but um i think it's an inescapable one okay so i thought that was all very kind of fair and and not kind of way off at one end. Um, I think the policy does reflect a range of views. We think it, ref- it, it clearly reflects a range of views in the committee, but it also reflects some of the range of views that we've been told by our members and by staff. So we we have been canvassing for views. So we knew that we had really everything from everyone should be masked at all times, no exceptions, um, you know, uh, all the way to nobody, nobody should be asking about masks here in 2023 because COVID has gone away. Um, COVID has not gone away. I think it reflects the fact that there's going to be a lot of people at this convention who are not subject to the policy, not just hotel staff, but also other people in the hotel. They'll be moving through convention spaces. If you're trying to be in an environment where there aren't unmasked people, this isn't the right environment because there are going to be a lot of unmasked people in the convention hotel and and quite a lot of unmasked people in the convention space. So including, you know, hotel staff and and people moving through our space to get to other spaces in the hotel. People can and, and should reduce their own risk dramatically by having a uh, having an FF2, FFP2 or FFP3 masks and properly wearing it. And if they're worried about risk, they should use it consistently, including when socialising. So one of the things that happened last year is that almost nobody at EasterCon wore their mask when socialising and most people at EasterCon socialised quite a lot. So I think that was one of the things that that caused some people to say, well, actually, 
you're taking no effective precautions anyway, ignoring the fact there were a portion of the membership who were being extremely careful. People who want to be extremely careful should carry on being extremely careful and they will reduce their risk very substantially. We're trusting our members to be responsible grown-ups and making responsible decisions. We are saying don't come with symptoms. And if anyone's obviously ill, I think that... We've told you not to come to the convention and to leave the convention and isolate. Um, You will be able to watch almost all of the convention online. So, you know, that's a a major point. Um, And you can do it in the hotel room, though though my, (laughs) my tech bunnies will say... Please, if you have got 5G, watch the convention on your 5G rather than using the hotel Wi-Fi. <laughs> because we are slightly worried that if, if lots of people are watching the convention from their hotel room, we won't have the Wi-Fi for it. But, you know, we're not going to change it now. So it's probably not perfect. I'm sure it could be better. But, you know, unless there's a major change in the COVID situation before Easter, we're not expecting to change the policy. We are expecting airflow to do quite a lot of the heavy lifting for us. Um we have over twice as much convention space as Reclamation had last year, and the um, Hilton's a much more modern and better laid out hotel generally in terms of space and airflow and has recently upgraded all of its filters. Um, so we think it's going to be a lot better, and we think airflow does is a lot of what you want here. I've said to everyone, bring a sweater because we'll leave doors open wherever we possibly can. And and we are giving refunds. If you if as a result of this policy you don't think you can attend the convention, we will refund your money. Just get in touch. Um, but before you ask for a refund, do consider whether you might enjoy the convention online, where you have no risk of getting COVID any more than all of the rest of the time in your life. Is that fair enough? I I just I just want to push back a little bit on the idea that I can take personal responsibility for my own risk by wearing a well fitting mask, because. I think you're then pushing the responsibility back on individuals for what is kind of a collective problem. Like, yes, I could wear a well-fitting mask at all times, but what would really help me not get COVID is if other people who have COVID also wear a well-fitting mask and that I can't do anything about. And I think it's also, you know, you can say, oh, well, people were socialising without masks on. But actually, when I think back to my Easter con last year, I socialised with the same group of people consistently with masks off. But then when I was in programme, I sat with lots of other people and kept masks on and they were mostly keeping masks on. So I don't think, I think we kind of get this kind of all or nothing. Oh, well, if you're going to the bar without a mask on, then there's no point wearing a mask any other time. And I'm not sure that is entirely true. And also we're saying a lot of things about airflow and filtering, but we've we've all become like armchair experts on airflow and filtering now. But there are kind of specifications for this kind of thing and what kind of filters you have and what the air turnover is in your spaces and things like that. And I think if you had a bit more detail on that people might be able to be a bit more reassured because you know you you can say it's got more modern filtering than the previous hotel but what i don't know is whether you can say and also other conventions which have used this space have had masking policies and had no case of covid or things like that or you can point to why this one is particularly good and better i want to say two things i think there is a there is a lack of understanding of probability distributions among the people having this discussion because <laughs> if you wear a mask, the center of your probability distribution goes towards lower risk. And what that means is that over the course of a convention, every time you wear a mask instead of not wearing a mask, you are at lower risk. And so your integrated risk is lower. And so even if you go to a four-day convention and only wear a mask for one program item, your integrated risk will be lower than if you had not done that. And so if even if you're in the bar unmasked for a little bit, you are still much safer masking the rest of the time. And I think people are forgetting that. It isn't, 
a binary you get COVID or you don't. I mean, obviously it is at the end, but what it is, is it's a risk profile and risk profiles are percentages, not yes, no. So I do think that's important. Maths. I think I would say that, and this is me, not the convention. If you attend a science fiction convention where 800 people spend the weekend in a hotel, you are pushing your risk profile way over to the right at that point. Yes, but every time you wear a mask, you're moving it back to the left. I will also say, I wore a mask most of the time I was socialising at Easter Connolly, other than when I was actively drinking. And the reason I remember that is because one friend did comment on it while I was in the bar. And I'm not saying that that friend's name rhymed with Schmalison Mott, uh, but I'm not saying it didn't either. But um, but basically, I mean, we decided at last Easter Con that we would probably be going to bed at midnight at the next Easter Con because it is also true that mask discipline drops substantially uh, after about 11pm midnight, which is basically where everyone is too drunk to make good decisions, which, um, you know, there's probably, I mean... 100%. Um, but I would also like to say, and I think this kind of gets to data, I'd love, I think it would be a lot easier to have some of these conversations if we had, like, data which is like you said you canvassed members but i'd love to know like what the percentages are and like what the sample size was no we didn't do it like that we just asked people what they thought yeah that's the thing right yeah but where did you ask people what they thought and who did you ask and how did you like get those people but also one of the things about asking people is that we know that when we ask people we've got the same half dozen people who are commenting at length every time and we are not going to make those people happy no you're not but if you did a survey and canvas properly, you could make the argument that it's those six dozen people, it's the half a dozen people think this, but like 85% of the convention disagree with them. Or it might turn out that 85% of the people basically agree with them, just are nowhere near as assholey about it. <laughs> and that's the thing I'd love to know. I'd love to know how, what percentage of British fandom wants there to be a mask mandate and what doesn't. Because if it turns out that I'm in the 5% of wanting one and 95% of people don't, I mean, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd be annoyed, same way I'm annoyed about Brexit, but there's nothing I could do about it, so I'd get on with things. Yeah, I'm a bit worried that if we actually said, should we just abandon the mask policy, we get some score of like 48, 52 and plunge all fandom into war. That's when it gets, that's when it gets tricky. I mean, I, and I think... At some point, we're going to move to not having a mask mandate. And so there's, there's this question about how slowly. Well, yeah, at some point we are going to do that. And that point is in Easter. <laughs> we don't have a mask mandate. <laughs> so, yes, obviously, at some point we won't have a mask mandate because we don't have a mask mandate. It's easy to say these things where they've already happened. We are encouraging masking. Let's. I, I want to be completely clear. We're cu encouraging a range of behaviours, including testing, avoiding the convention if you're sick, even if your test shows negative, um, wearing masks whenever you might be in close proximity with other people. And there's a fourth thing. And vaccination. Yeah, you, you know, vaccination. I didn't mention earlier, but one of the reasons for not saying we'll check your vaccination status is that that is one of the things where national guidelines are very clear. They're, they're very clear that you should not be doing it to the extent that they've basically said, oh, we only issue COVID passes now for people travelling abroad because events shouldn't be doing this. So, so we want you to be vaccinated. We think everyone should be vaccinated. It's, it's quite hard to get vaccinations now. You can't get boosters now if you don't have them already. I'm going to add a couple of things, which is... To John's point on the survey, fandom is not a democracy. And I don't know how many like policies that we think are good policies and that we accept now, like things like code of conduct, how many of them would have generally been, you know, 
approved by a majority of the of the fans. No, that's the yeah, that's a good. And the other thing I would say is if if you were canvassing opinions from your members, you will have missed out on a segment of people, which is the people who aren't joining your convention until you publish your COVID policy. Because you said you you canvass people on the COVID policy, and it would be we're not going to get too deep into the weeds on this, but there is like a group of people. You're going to miss the opinions of some groups of people, however you do it. Yeah, canvas might have been too strong a word, really. And to go back to your point about codes of conduct, Liz, I do completely see what you mean. But I do think there is an element here where it's just real tricky, right? I don't know whether I think it should be democratic or not. I made the point earlier about like wanting sci-fi fandom to do right by the less enfranchised, and I do want that. But equally, I don't want to be a guy who keeps bloviating about an argument years after he's lost it. Because I also strongly feel we should be in the EU. But that's why I use Brexit as an example. Like Brexit is something I feel very, very strongly about. But equally, I have lost the argument. And like at some point, I am going to have to be okay with that for my own mental health as much for anything else. Can we do picks? Yeah, I suppose so. My pick is pretty short. Are you doing, you're not doing, you've changed your pick, right? So it's not 17 different things. Oh, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. All right, right, right. Shall I go first? Yes. Okay. Yes. My pick is Living with Ghosts by Carrie Sperring, which is a great book. Carrie Sperring is one of the EastCon guests of honour. I am trying to read at least one book by all of them prior to the convention. So I started with Carrie Sperring. So this is a great book. It is slow to start, I think. It lays down the groundwork. And I found some of the characters a bit confusing because everyone has like a diminutive name and a proper name. And there was a part of the novel where I had not entirely resolved whether some people were two characters or one character. But by about page 50, I had got the hang of it. So that's good. But when it gets going, oh, it gets going. It's very sexy and very tense. Sometimes at the same time. It's an extraordinarily sexy book, though. Oh, full disclosure carries my mate. I think Living with Ghosts is a very fine novel. It's her first novel, I think. But all of Carrie's writing is great. You should read it all. I'm delighted. She's got a new book out at Easter. We should probably tout it um, from Ian Waits, and which is a collection of her Arthurian novellas. And I'm really looking forward to that and reading that as well. Yes. And also, it's got a lovely cover. What, the new one? Yeah, it does. But yes, that's my pick. Good book. Would highly recommend. Uh, so I have a slightly left field pick today. I am going to recommend a website called theowljob.com. Side note, do not just Google owljob. It has an urban dictionary meaning. Anyway, so uh, the website The Owl Job is, it's a website with design lessons from The Owl Job, which is uh, apparently Australia's first ever sightless escape room. So it's a whole website about how they built this escape room deliberately. So it was designed to be run either by people with low vision or for anyone who was sighted who was running the the escape room they had to basically put on goggles and play it as though they were not sighted but it's really interesting it gets into all the different things you have to do to basically make an escape room work for that group of people kind of a lot of it is sort of obvious but i'd never thought about it and a lot of it is really interesting and like okay you know this is just taking some universal rules of game design but making sure you apply them in this situation and it was things like having uh, a coherent tactile language so that when they are feeling their way around the different puzzles, they worked out what was the best arrow shape to have so they could always consistently find an arrow. And they tried a bunch of designs that end up being confusing and they kind of show how they got to this one design that works. 
and it sounded like a fascinating escape room and i really wish i'd been able to to try it out but it sounded great and it's it's essentially there to to give the lessons they learn from this to other people and show them how designing a sightless game uh a sightless escape room does not have to be any more expensive or particularly difficult than designing any other escape room you just have to approach it in a slightly different way and i think they hope that there will be more escape rooms of this type so i think anyone who's interested in game design would really enjoy this website noise my pick so i haven't really i've still not really been doing anything hopefully i'll be more or less back to normal next time we record i recommend spider-man movies or a spider-man movie which is spider-man far from home i'm never going to cope with two films which are sequels to or one of which is a sequel to the other which are called spider-man far from home and spider-man no way home i think i think that's like poor marketing guys and you could have done better but anyway spider-man far from home which i i kind of got to a point where i was like what do i need i i need something that it should be like an action movie, but maybe also a teen rom-com. That's what I need. And um, so, yeah, it's great for the grief-stricken to distracted because at no point in this movie do you think that any of the kids are in any actual danger because, you know, it's a teen rom-com movie. So if one of the teens, teens got stabbed through the heart, that wouldn't quite fit the vibe. <laughs> it's like glorious candy floss. And it has a little bit of multiverse in it. It's starting to get that sort of sense of, oh, Spider-Man is more um, more into the multiverse than most of the Marvel heroes, and I quite like getting that sort of sense coming along in um, in the in the mainstream movies. And hopefully, it'll all fit together in the third one, which we'll watch in the next week or two. I should think. I know I'm like six years behind on Marvel. Don't write. I think this is post blip though, so I think we're. I'm, I'm like I've, I've, we've come to the end of the pre blip movies. I think apart from the whole Ant Man set, which I probably need to watch soon as well. I am going to catch up one day. Have you not watched the first Ant-Man yet? No, because we watched, we had a choice this time between should we watch the first Ant-Man or should we watch Spider-Man Far From Home? And we watched Spider-Man Far From Home. Should I have watched the first Ant-Man instead? Oh, I think most people would disagree that you should have done. But Ant-Man is like one of my favourite characters in the MCU. So um, okay, I love them. So I have quite a lot of movies as homework for, for this fortnight. So Just like Michael Peña in every, anything, I'm like down. She's very funny. I like funny. I do like, in general, Marvel is much better when, I mean, I like the funny bits, right? I don't like the superhero fight bits, partly because I think if you see them in the, if you go see them in the cinema, then massive superhero bite fights are probably a lot of fun. Um, but in in my living room with my slightly shitty, slightly old TV, I'm kind of like, oh no, this is this is not very exciting. So so I like I like the jokes. I'm, I'm there for the character development of the jokes, please. Mm-mm. That was the Art Thought Podcast, and it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Is it Spock Amok, or is it supposed to be like Spock Mock and it rhymes? Or is this a US-UK difference? Well, but Amok isn't pronounced Amok, right? It's pronounced Amok. It's going to be one of these things like Squirrel Girl, where you discover, having read the entire series, that Squirrel and Girl rhyme in many parts of the US. So it's sort of like Squirrel Girl, which doesn't make any sense to me, but there we go. So it's probably Spock Amok.
I did not. No, no, fair enough. Spark a mark. I think it probably is a US US British. Um, Spock a mock. Spock a mock rhyme in my English, actually. There we go. Because I say a mock, not a muck. But it's pronounced a muck. Because pronunciation is, a, is not a uniform thing. And also, I might just have learned it off reading books and therefore just pronounce it wrong. Possibly. Like I was 17 before I realised how you say macabre. So it comes from the Portuguese amuco from the Malay amuk. So I think probably originally it was pronounced amuk. But I, I would not be surprised if there were parts of the world where it rhymes with Spock. But I did say all of this on the last episode and we're just and we're just reiterating it for no reason. Did we say it on the last episode and you cut it yes, out for being I really boring? Yes, I said literally out loud. I think it's supposed <laughs> to rhyme, but I don't pronounce it to rhyme. Li- literally said that on episode 77 with my words. Oh, I wasn't listening. Sorry. So I'm going to have to cut all of this out anyway because <laughs> this is not interesting enough to revisit. Uh, I did wonder, I was like, do they remember that I mentioned that? And now I know the answer is no. Okay, so I'm going to I'm gonna say I spent... I've spent the last month in a distracted fog. I don't remember anything at the moment. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.